Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, come and make much of yourself. Show us your beauty that we would adore you. Your truthfulness, trustworthiness that we would believe you. We need your spirit for these things. And so give us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear by your spirit's presence in your church. Make your word powerful and effective. We pray this, our Savior, in your name. Amen. There is a tendency uh, to sort of add religion onto parts of our lives. Like there's, there's different aspects maybe of who we are and what we do. And there's, there's a tendency to just make religion one of those parts of who we are, what we believe. And the theme that John is going to really press us on repeatedly is how Jesus is the most basic one. He meets our most basic need because he meets the need under the need. For the thirsty, as John's going to show us, is for the thirsty soul that craves attention. Jesus is not just something a little extra that you put on the side to help you get that attention. He's the attention. He is the living water to quench that thirsty soul's drive. John's going to show us that for the dead, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Those who fear death have hope because Jesus meets that most basic need. The one who needs to become someone new, John's going to show us that Jesus doesn't just show us the pathway to transformation. He's the one who takes our old broken selves and gives new birth so that we're transformed and become somebody new. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the end of John's gospel and look at why he's telling us he's writing this book. And the first thing that he says, and we're going to do this, we're going to do John's gospel for the next, I don't know, six months, nine months. So we need to get a framework for what John's trying to do, sort of a roadmap. You know, where are we going? What, John, tell us what you're trying to do. And, and John's very clear why he's writing. He's writing so that we could find life in Jesus. The Son, I write to you so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel has long been my favorite gospel. For many of you, I think it is too. I hear that a lot. It's the gospel that I came a Christian through in the fall of 1999. One of the reasons that John's gospel is a favorite amongst many is that it is a fairly easy to understand gospel. It, it presents us to us in, in really rich ways that are fairly easy to understand. John's gospel has been described by some as being like a a river that a baby can wade into and be safe or has depth and complexity to it so that it's also like a river that an elephant can swim in. You start digging through and it has layers. 
simple and easy to understand, and yet you discover very quickly that John has a great deal of sense that overwhelms you. He's experienced Jesus in such a way that he, he can speak of him as one who meets our most simple needs, but in the most profound way, and it leaves you with a sense of awe. But that's just how the Bible is in general, isn't it? It's easy to understand, and really what we're doing today is just an introduction to how to read your Bible and applying it to John's gospel, but that's how the Bible is in general, and we should expect it to be that way. The Bible comes to us, and, and for someone who's not yet believing in Jesus, it can give us a and really easy to understand. Christianity is not difficult to understand, but when you come to the Bible, you find the more you read it, the more you are overwhelmed by its depth. And the way it speaks to us. And that's because it is God's word. God is both revealed and therefore understandable. But also incomprehensible. For all eternity we'll still be learning and never plumb the depths of who God is. When you come to your word it's easy to, to God's word. It's easy to, to understand. But there's richness there. And so as we come to John's gospel, really as we come to any book of the Bible, there are, there are important questions that we need to ask. It's very simple questions. Who, what, where, when, and why? Those five questions. Who wrote this and why and who was it written to? What is this book? Where was it written? When was it written? Why was it written? John John really answers all of those questions for us. And they're, they're books, they're questions that we should be able to answer on any book that you read, honestly, and anything that you absorb, whether it's the news or whether it's a novel or whether it's a book of the Bible. Those are questions, who, what, where, when, and why, are questions we should always be asking of the information that we receive. And it shouldn't surprise us that we can apply these to God's word, because it is the word of God written through men. Those are the two twin truths that we develop a grid for reading the Bible through and reading John's gospel through. It is God's word because all scripture is breathed out by God. There are no other book or person or advice that should have the same place as God's word. It has authority. It's also enough sufficiency when you come to God's word because it is God's word and breathed out by him. And John, like the other gospels, was received by the early church as God's word very early on. There's evidence from early church fathers that... um, there's substantial evidence, in fact, that as soon as John's gospel was written, it was immediately received as God's word. And many of you know this, but we don't actually have the original manuscripts from the Bible. But we do have um, manuscript evidence from very early on. From early in the first century, books of the Bible are being copied. Right? Why? Because God's people believed this was God's word to the church and needed to be copied and distributed. And the earliest copy that we have is from the early part of the first century. It's a portion of John's gospel. And if you do the math on that, John's gospel was most likely written in the late part of the 
first century, sort of the best manuscripts we have from the second century, early second century, around 125. John was probably written around 80 AD or 90 AD, give or take a few years. Now you do the math on that. Within 30 years, we have a manuscript evidence of God's word in the gospel of John. Some of you, now do the math on this, some of you have children who are within 30 years of your age. For mothers and parents handing down John's gospel because they saw it as God's word. They recognized it as God's word and was to be treasured and handed down to generation after generation, to church after church, as it went out from out the Roman Empire. Evidence only expands. But the way that God breathed out his word is also important for us to develop our grid of interpretation because Paul says in 2 Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God. We recognize that it was John's gospel was received as God's word, but the way that God breathed out his word is just as important in developing a grid through which we read it. Because Peter then says in 1 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy, and by this he really means no prophecy of scripture, because that's what he says in just a second, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God breathed it out, but he did so through men. And that means that the Bible is God's word, but it's written through the instruments of men. And as such, the Bible bears marks of their personalities of the individual writers. It's not a reason to doubt the Bible because, because there are different personalities being written, different stories being told. Many of you know that there are four Gospels, all with different emphases and all with some things in different places and in different orders. And that shouldn't surprise us because each of these men through whom that God was writing had different things to say. And John, in fact, himself tells us that there are many things that Jesus did that aren't written in this book. And he's telling us, I had to be selective. I had to choose certain things to include. And when I chose those certain things, I did so in order to communicate a message to you. Through my personality, God is is using his life experiences as we will see. He's not writing as a, Analyst, He's writing more like a poet. And so when God writes through men, that helps us understand why we should ask these five questions. Who, what, where, when, and why? Because this is something that John, as he's speaking God's word, has something to say to us. So the first question is what? What is this? What is this thing that we're reading? And that's the question of genre. Right? Understanding a type of literature is important. You should read history much differently than you read poetry. And we just intuitively get this. We intuitively learn that we need to put on a certain set of lenses, set of lenses to read a particular genre. Right? For instance, let me illustrate this. If I were to say, if you were just to read these bare words, he hit on her. Now, if you're reading that through, like if you're reading a legal deposition of a sexual harassment claim, you would read that and the emotions that would come up or should come up are discussed as injustice and violation has occurred. But if you're reading that 
as a poem written um, uh, describing the 50th anniversary of a couple who are celebrating their marriage, and you read, he hit on her. You'd be like, oh, after so many years, that just brings delight out of my soul. Well, the Gospels are a genre of their own. They're different from the prophets or the poetry of the book of Psalms or the wisdom literature of Job and and Proverbs or the historical writing of Moses. The, The Gospels are a genre. And they're in the genre of biography, an ancient biography in the Roman world. Was, was written a little bit different than biographies are written today. Biographies written today are more like, a, we're going to start at the beginning, we're going to go all the way through, and we're just going to tell you the events that are going on. Well, in the ancient Greek world, in the ancient Roman world, biographies were written to compel someone to follow the teaching and the way of life of the particularly philosophers. Philosophers were the ones that were, were having biographies written about them. In fact, they were, they were called bioi, Right, Because they're biographies of life. This is the way of life. And so John and the rest of the gospel writers pick up this genre and is often done through the pages of scripture. They redeem it and tweak it just a little bit. It becomes a different thing as they are telling the story of Jesus. And why do we have four gospels? This is important because John's gospel differs from the other gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called the synoptic gospels. They cover roughly the same information. There are in those almost the same stories and teachings that are unique. Now, you can understand why if you put four people in a room and ask them to describe a football game that you just saw or an event that just happened, you're going to get four different perspectives. That doesn't mean that one is true or more true than the others and the others are false. It just means that they're seeing things and emphasizing things that may or may not been important for their story that they're trying to tell. But John's gospel is unique. It is not like the other three gospels. Much of what John includes isn't included in the other synoptic gospels. And John closes his gospel with these words. The very last verse of John chapter 21 ends with these words. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so John's just telling us from the beginning, I had to be selective. The life that flowed out of Jesus was so abundant that I could not, and all people could not contain all that he said and did. They had to be selective, which is one of the reasons that we have four gospels. There was so much to be said that God could not say it all through just one person about who Jesus is. But it also helps us understand that John was organizing his gospel with an agenda. Now, don't you wish the news did this? I have an agenda. I know Fox says they're fair and balanced, but who, do you really believe that? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if they just played the card? Look, we're, we're a, a fairly far right uh, or a fairly far left channel. That's just where we're coming from because we want to convince you to believe our take on reality. John just does that. He puts his cards on the table. This is what I'm trying to do. 
These are written, verse 31 of chapter 20, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's why John is writing, which takes us to the question of who. And there are really two who's. Who is writing and who is it written to? We're not really sure who John is writing to because um, he both describes a lot of Jewish literature and practices, but he over-describes it. He mansplains it, if you will. Because people probably weren't experienced with Jewish custom. He's probably writing to a world with an evangelistic intent. I want to introduce you to Jesus. But to introduce you to Jesus, you really got to understand all this other stuff that he did. So I'm going to introduce you to the Jewish way of life. And so John's writing, John's writing to bring clarity to who Jesus is. And this is the high point of John 31 where he says this, Jesus is the Christ. That's a loaded word. He means by, as he's saying, Jesus is the long promised one through whom God would put the world right again. Did you hear Buck reading from Isaiah earlier? He just longed for such a vision of the world being made right again. All the brokenness of our lives in this world being made right again. And here's John's point. God's done it and is doing it through Jesus because he's the Christ. He's the long-awaited one. He's the one who fulfills the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. He's the better temple, as we'll see the true fulfillment of the temple. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who comes from the Father's side, which takes us to point two. Not only is he the Christ, he is the Son of God. And he wasn't on humankind's, it wasn't on our shoulders to fix our lives or this sin-cursed world. It was on God's shoulders, and he has worked through Jesus to undo everything that was broken by sin. And that forms the framework for understanding the themes of John's gospel. God the Son has come. God has sent him. He's putting the world right again. He's undoing everything that's been broken by sin, so that by believing in his name, we may have life. We'll see Repeatedly, this theme of life coming up again and again and again. So Jesus gives. He gives life. The broken and the weary and the hopeless. To those who have despaired of themselves and their own goodness, he brings life. To those who look around and see nothing but brokenness, Jesus breaks in and brings life. And that by believing in his name, and now, and that when you begin to understand who John is, We understand how important that theme was. John's not named in this gospel, which was pretty typical of the gospel writers. They don't name themselves. The only reason, the only biographical mark that we get of the Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark is that he fled pretty much naked and afraid one day. He just leaves that as a biographical note. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Mark. I'm writing this to you. Luke does that, but most of the other gospel writers don't. John doesn't name himself. What we know about John though, is that from very early testimony, it was attributed to the gospel of John, or sorry, the apostle John. We have lots of extra biblical evidence that describe him, and when we begin to read through the layers of John, we, dis- we hear him referring to himself this way over and over and over again. In fact, the, the 
the Apostle John is kind of absent from most of the lists and, and players in the gospel. It's another indicator that this was him. He's leaving himself out of the story. Instead, by name, he's leaving himself out. But instead, by identity, he's writing himself in. Because this is how he referred to himself. The disciple that Jesus loved. And when you begin to read, you realize that wasn't just him saying, Jesus loved me more than the others. It's him saying, this is how I've begun to see myself. I don't see myself as John. I see myself as a beloved one of Jesus Christ. Now, he was also one of the inner circle. He was mentioned together on a number of key occasions. Peter, James, and John are mentioned together. Peter and James are key leaders, as is John in the early part of uh, the church in Jerusalem. John was a fairly well-to-do fisherman because his father had men working for him, servants working for him, but he was uneducated, Paul tells us, or Luke tells us in Acts chapter 14. He was originally a disciple of John the Baptist, which helps us understand why John the Baptist plays such a prominent role in the beginning of John's gospel. John seems to have been a pretty big personality, the kind of personality that people either loved or hated because Jesus nicknamed him and his brother James the sons of thunder. He was so close to Jesus that Jesus on his death on the cross entrusted his mother to his care and when Jesus was at the last supper we're told in John's gospel that John reclined against the breast of Jesus against his chest. There was an intimacy about him That's the who is writing this gospel. And the who needs to be explored more through the question of where. John is closely, the question of where and when in this instance are closely related. This gives us some insight into who John was and why he was writing in his place of life. Because he's not writing in a vacuum. He's not writing like a robot simply dictating all these down. God is using all of John's experience as he does with our ministry in this world. He's using all of our experience and all of John's experience to bring his world, his word into effect. John is most likely writing around 90 AD, as I had mentioned before, and that gives us some experience to his, some color to John. The temple, you see, had been destroyed around 70 AD by the Romans. John is writing after that event. John was living in Jerusalem at the time that the temple was destroyed and had become a pillar of the Jerusalem church. Rome had sieged Jerusalem for around six months before they broke through and utterly destroyed the temple. That was the final blow to the nation of Israel. Imagine what that would be like to see happen emotionally if, if an invading army came in and took down the Capitol building and the White House all in one fell swoop. It would be incredibly disruptive to our sense of security and identity. It also helps us understand why so much of Jesus' interaction with the Jews in John's gospel is centered around the temple. It almost, the temple, as we'll see, almost becomes another character in John's gospel. But John himself not only had lived through that, but he himself had been through a great deal. He is the last, at this point, he's the last living apostle. All the other apostles had been martyred by this point in John's life. And then 
In AD 85, Jewish opposition grew and all the Christians were kicked out of Jerusalem along with John. John was exiled at this point that he's writing to a small island off the coast of Turkey called Patmos. And while on Patmos, he had received the revelation that is the book of Revelation at the end of our Bible. All his friends had been martyred. He was the last one standing. The center point of his home country had been destroyed. He himself had been sent on exile and now is living in a far-off city of Ephesus. How does that shape the message of John's gospel? Well, all of the pain, calamity, and oppression that John had experienced comes through. Comes through with Jesus bringing comfort and hope to the darkest places. It comes through that God is moving his church forward with this basic message. Jesus is enough. That's easy. You know, that's, if you hear that from someone who's, you know, living in a 5,000 square foot house and driving four nice cars and you say, Jesus is enough, you're kind of like, yeah, Maybe. But if you've got to hear it from someone who has watched every one of their ministry companions die, who himself has been exiled, and while in exile had to be a slave in the mines, when you hear him say, Jesus is enough, he's found something in Jesus that we should cherish and need, which is why he writes that last question, who, what, where, when, and why. He writes, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, we need to talk for just a second what he means by belief. Belief and faith are the response that he wants to elicit in us. Again, he's laying his cards on the table. I'm telling you what I want. I'm not telling you to be objective and just kind of weigh this out. I'm presenting this to you because I have an agenda. I want you to believe and believe in John's gospel is believing into Jesus. It's more than just intellectual assent. Because we'll see in a couple of places that people intellectually assent to Jesus, but Jesus on his part doesn't give himself to them. But when... When one believes in John's gospel, they're entrusting to the care of. Almost despairing of themselves. I can't take care of myself anymore. Jesus, take care of me. And what happens when you entrust yourself to Jesus is that you are entrusting yourself into him. And you become one with him. And he comes and lives with you by his Holy Spirit. I'm not leaving you as orphans, he says in John's gospel. I'm leaving you, but you're better off because I'm going to come by my Holy Spirit and live in you. And then you'll know the love of God that's shed abroad in your heart. You entrust yourself to me, and I will entrust myself to you, and we will be one. And you'll experience life. And that's how John structures his gospel. He really structures his gospel this way. It's a, again, it's a fairly simple book, two chapters. Chapter 1, chapters 1 through 12, 
the book of signs. Seven different signs. John's like, here's the reasons you should believe into Jesus. Here's some signs, some wonderful things that he does to prove to you that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, interestingly enough, and on this theme of faith as in trusting, all of those signs bring about a confrontation. Jesus is not a safe person to get to know. He's constantly thrusting us into situations where we have to say, do I believe you? Will I be willing to entrust this part of my life to you? Constantly testing our allegiances, and that's what he does. The signs divide in John's gospel. And then chapters 13 through 20, the second part, the book of glory. John's making the case that we should entrust ourselves to Jesus. When he trusts water into wine, when he turns water into wine, a fairly large crowd gathers around him. And, and as we'll see, John's saying, look, God has saved his best for last. When 5,000 people gather around Jesus and they're hungry, he feeds 5,000 with just a little bit of food. And he's saying, look, I'm enough to satisfy your hunger. Now, will you entrust yourself to me? And that process never stops, does it? This is what he says in verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe. And the verb tense here is really interesting. It communicates sort of a, an, a one-time act that gets repeated over and over again. You may translate it this way. But these things are written so that you may believe once and then keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he's enough to meet our most basic need because he's the bread of life for our hungry souls. He's the resurrection of life in the face of death. He's spiritual thirst for those who are looking for it in filthy waters. And then he ends. John's gospel has been described this way. It's a long introduction with a, a long crucifixion narrative. Starting with chapter 13, it's all about the crucifixion of Jesus which is John's main point. Because the one who is the life also has to be our death to bring us life. Death, then resurrection. More about the resurrection of Jesus is known to us through John's gospel than any other gospel. John's point, the one who is the life also has to be our death in order to bring us resurrection life. And you can imagine the coming from a man who had suffered so much. He's realized this key point, that by believing into Jesus, death and resurrection are the constant patterns. That pain is still a thing, and Jesus lets pain and brokenness invade our lives before he brings about life. He's going to bring life. But the one who brings life does throw so through death and then resurrection. The one who brings thirst makes us thirsty. The one who brings satisfaction to our hungry souls is willing to let us be hungry. The one who's going to raise Lazarus first lets him die. 
and the one, because the one who does all these things is going to bear our sins on the cross and be our death so that he can then be our resurrection and life. So let's go on this journey and entrust ourselves to Jesus just a little bit more every Sunday for the next few months. Let's pray. Lord, we want to, Jesus, we want to know more of you so that by believing ourselves into your care, we might have life in your name. You died the death we should have died so that we could be righteous before your Father. You lived the life that we should have lived so that we could be righteous before your Father and you have lived death and resurrection so that we could be transformed. So comfort us and transform us as we journey with your beloved disciple over the next months. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen.